place your advance order now on Amazon for the very first volume of the New Thinking Aloud Dialogue series, Is There Life After Death? Publication date is June 1st. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the esoteric and mystical traditions of the New World with a special focus on the colonial and the pre-colonial periods. My guest is Ronnie Pontiac, who worked as the research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for Manly P. Hall at the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles for seven years. He's produced award-winning documentaries and has written articles for several esoteric magazines, including, for example, Reality Sandwich. He is author of American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. He lives in Los Angeles, and now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Ronnie. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I feel like this is a special interview because we both have a strong, even a profound connection with the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles. We both spent many years there, although at different time periods, so we, we never ran into each other at, at the time. But you had the privilege of working very closely with Manley P. Hall, one of the great metaphysical teachers and, and writers and thinkers the, uh, that America has ever produced. It was a wonderful experience. He, At the time that I knew him, at the end of his life, he was just a magical, wonderful, tranquil, hilarious, and so kind a human being. I can really say that he civilized me and uh, opened my, my soul and my heart to love of life and of knowledge. Well, since our topic today and, and your masterpiece, your book, is uh, about the esoteric and mystical origins of American religion, we have to acknowledge Manley Hall's book, The Secret Destiny of America. It's become something of a cult classic. I'm pretty sure it must be, uh, next to the you know, secret teachings of all ages, his most popular book. And I, I can't help but think it's very relevant to your work. This book really began when I was working for him. And in a way, it's an extension of his work, in my mind. There was so much new research and very often when I found it, I would think, wow, I wish that I had had this when I was working for him. If I could have just walked into his office and said, look at this, he would have been so excited because there's so much new research. And so I wanted to to bring all that new research about the subjects that he loved and wrote about to people that might not otherwise hear about it because it's it's kind of locked behind the expensive doors of academic books. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Manley's 
thesis and the secret destiny of America is, is that esoteric traditions had been basically foretelling or prophesying or expecting that uh, the discovery of the new world would be an opportunity to break out of some of the constraints, the uh, mental constraints and, and social constraints that people in Asia and, and particularly in Europe had had been in for centuries. Yes, there's a very fascinating stream of this kind of thought in American metaphysical religion that begins with ancient Egypt, in his case with Akhenaten. And he felt that there was the birth of a, a new way of life there, a new kind of spirituality in Akhenaten's humanization of the position of Pharaoh, at least in art, and also in his rejection of, of all the different gods of Egypt for this one god. And then there is this fascinating to me uh history of myth like a mythological history if you will of of how this has been a plan by a secret brotherhood or or by generations of esotericists who've been initiated at the higher levels when you look at the history of it, it to me it's even more fascinating because it seems to be a, a bunch of human beings who are looking toward that kind of future and there is an awareness in the generation. So, for instance, uh, when they're building New Haven, they're using a lot of Egyptian archaeology, uh, rather uh, architecture. And so they they were aware that in some way they were fulfilling some of the hopes that that, that civilization had had enshrined and maybe it had not achieved itself. And and so within American metaphysical religion, there's a whole mythology around it that includes Atlantis and the idea that right now what's happening in, in America is, is, in a sense, a battle for the soul of the country, where on one hand, we have a bunch of what could be called Atlanteans who are uh, not un they don't understand things like sustainability and harmony and, and equity, and they just want to push the technology and experimentation and discovery to its furthest end, no matter the result. And then you have this other group who are said to be the Egyptians who have come to America to, and this is the phrase that, that is used, to cap the pyramid. And, and then when we see the, the symbol on our money, the, the, this, the eye, the awareness, the open eye of consciousness capping the pyramid, the idea is to create an enlightened nation. And a nation that is, that is, is aware the way that an enlightened person is aware. That's the great dream. It's what the Rosicrucians call the universal reformation. And so, uh, the hope for that universal reformation was a big part of those early colonies. That, that there were people who had tried to create that revolution, the Rosicrucians in Europe, and it failed. Uh, it started the Thirty Years' War, and many of them turned their attention to creating colonies in America. Well, we'll be exploring some of that history in great detail, uh, particularly the colonial and even the pre-colonial religions of America. Uh, but I'd like to begin with uh, something of an overview of your work, although you've just really encapsulated it very nicely. But um, I'm of the impression 
that almost every facet of American life has some aspect of mystical and esoteric culture at its origins, things you wouldn't even uh, expect. For example, the inventions of Thomas Edison or the uh, great theatrical performances on Broadway, I think all have esoteric uh, roots. And I know uh, your book is amazing because you you cover I think about five centuries or more uh, of uh, American history. How does it look to you? It was uh, it was shocking. Uh, the, to to me, the research in the last ten twenty years has revealed a completely alternate history of America, a, a third rail, if you will, <laughs> that has been left out deliberately because, for one thing, generations of historians, especially in the area of religious studies were directed to study the great institutions that shaped civilization, the acceptable religions. And as late as the, as a mid century, uh, 20th century, there were uh, professors who, if they studied Pentecostals, were considered radical. And all the esoteric streams were an embarrassment. They were superstitions. They were, they didn't influence anything significant. Well, the new research reveals that actually, to begin with, America was never as devoted to Christianity or as pure in its Christianity as, as we've been taught. That from the very earliest days, going back to the trappers, there were alchemists and Kabbalists and all sorts of esotericists running around here who were attracted by this wild new place. And they were very apt to be sharing their different traditions and creating hybrid traditions together, reinventing things. And so this country uh, actually became a magnet for esoterically inclined people, such as the German pietists, who were radical even for the German Protestants because of their Rosicrucian and Paracelsus-influenced beliefs. And so they came and they settled in Pennsylvania and created the amazing uh, community of Ephrata. And so we also get uh, the desire to exploit America, but with uh, the idea that it's not going to be subject to the Pope or to the Holy Roman Empire. And that was a big deal because for centuries in Europe, they have the greatest surveillance state of all time, the confessional. And the Pope had an iron grip on most of what happened throughout Europe, and his his iron was the Holy Roman Empire. And the Holy Roman Empire had become a Habsburg inheritance, which it wasn't supposed to be. And so this is why there was the Thirty Years' War, was this attempt to to free Europe from this and allow Protestantism to continue because the church led by the relatively new order than the Jesuits was trying to roll back Protestantism and, and regain its control. But in America, you had a whole new game. And, and so as a result, the, the entire history is just saturated with people coming over from other places, also Asia and Africa brought here by force to, to be enslaved but bringing with them these amazing traditions. And so we see, for instance, in something as simple as the American obsession with the idea of cool, like generations of us since that phrase became uh, known have been obsessed with how can I be cool and what is cool now? But that is a Yoruba concept. Uh, it was brought here from Africa 
And it's, it's so similar there. I believe it's called Ashe. And it's the idea that, that a person who stays calm and, and who has, has their wits about them in a, in a highly stressful situation is cool. A, a beautiful carnelian bead that was just carved brilliantly. That's cool. A great drum beat. That's cool. Well, that's the same as our cool. And we got it from the Yoruba. So we, our culture indeed, and our politics and, and Christianity itself, I argue in the book, has been deeply influenced by metaphysical beliefs. We, we, uh, the most brilliant scholar, uh, Catherine Albanese, who's really behind this field of American metaphysical religion as the, the scholar who established it. Uh, she has a new book out about the pursuit of happiness and how it has transformed religion in America. And, and so you can see that Christianity in its origins is a religion that's teaching that rich people can't get into heaven and that suffering is what this place is about. And, and we must all live communally and, and share and, and never fight, never, never make war. And, and instead, this entirely other thing grew up around the Christian mythos. So, uh, in America, this process of reinventing religion and history was like in a giant alchemical laboratory. And it's still going on. Obviously, the, the very fact that you and I are having this conversation now and that thousands of people will be listening is an indication, a serious indication that something is going on here. Definitely. I think it's actually having another renaissance. And there's periodic renaissances where it comes out into the light in a big way. Uh, it's been happening ever since the early days. And and some of these big renaissances influence each other. To give one quick example, in the 19th century in America, you had three things happen. Spiritualism, the New England Transcendentalists, and a huge Platonist revival, where there were Plato clubs in the Midwest. And, and Yale magazine, Yale was publishing uh, new translations that would be covered in popular magazines. It was big news when it was Plato's birthday. And these were all Christian people, but they felt that Plato was a precursor to their Christian beliefs. And they wanted to be uh, understanding of what kind of wisdom was there. And that they all influenced each other so deeply that some scholars argue that you can't go into spiritualism without finding Plato everywhere. Well, what you're pointing to from my perspective is something of a paradox because uh, there are those who regard Plato as a pure mystic, someone who is pointing to the importance of, of recognizing the one and, and the one within ourselves. And then there are others who say that the, the decline of Western civilization began with Plato because he was a rationalist. And prior to Plato, the, the pre-Socratic philosophers were all much more mystical authentically than, than he was, that he was a turn away from mysticism. And, and I, I see that tension in almost every facet of uh, American uh, mysticism and American life, really. Well, it's a, it's a divide that has afflicted civilization for a long time. And I, I think of it as being connected to the need for certainty. And we human beings will, will accept certainty as faith or by reason, but we want certainty. 
and we're willing to sacrifice the the other one if we can get certainty. So we will have faith without reason and we'll have reason without faith. It's what we I feel that what we really need to develop, just as a side note, is is tolerance for paradox and and being okay with not knowing. After all, Socrates, he said the only thing that he knew was that he didn't know. And and so if we could be more comfortable with that, I think that a lot of the division that you're describing would would be um, ameliorated. But the there is definitely I mean, the division really goes back to the earliest days of the colonies where you have this fellow, Tom Morton, who is then nicknamed the pagan pilgrim. And you have you have the pilgrims, the first generation of them, uh, the ones that Disney sort of uh, turned into our American saints. And the story of Tom Morton has been all but ignored. There's hardly any writing about him. But he was an alternate American founding father almost and and gives a different kind of America. Um, so this was a man who. Uh, grew up at the time as a boy, for instance, he, he was uh, frightened about the Spanish Armada on its way to England. He lived most of his life under Elizabeth. And when he was 50 years old, his marriage was falling apart and he was sent by one of his patrons to America to open a trading post. And the idea behind this was that there was already a split going on in England that was going to create a civil war. And that split was between the Puritans and what was called the Cavaliers. And they could not be more different. The Cavaliers were royalists. They they usually had long hair and beards and mustaches. They were rakish. They loved to drink. They used to do what they called wenching. And and they were they were fighters and uh, the Puritans were very serious people who they, you weren't allowed to laugh or you shouldn't run. You can walk quickly, but don't run. Uh, they were, they were very skeptical of the Royals. They thought the Royals were, uh, debauched and immoral and, and were beginning to recognize America, you know, I think in this, in this civil war. And so the Puritans came out here and they, they set up a pretty good, the pilgrims had a pretty good, beginning here, one that went better than the earlier English attempts to colonize, which often disappeared. And so here we see uh, Tom Morton coming out to establish a cavalier outpost, and he brings a completely different philosophy. The pilgrims at this point are very frightened of the wilderness and of the indigenous people. They think that it's all satanic. They are very frightened by the dangers of life in America, and they're not very good at protecting themselves or getting food by hunting or their farming fails and their pride makes it so that when the indigenous people try to show them better ways to, to do the agriculture in this kind of terrain, they refuse it because they won't take these satanic tricks. And here is a man on the other hand who comes over here and he doesn't even have a wall around his trading post. There are no guards. He is fascinated by indigenous culture. He wants to know all about their dreams and their families. And he, he, he writes about how good they are to the elderly, much better than the English and how moral their women are better than the girls back home. <laughs> and the pilgrims have been saying that these were savages. And so they came to trust him, the local tribes, 
local trappers, but also pirates and, and outlaws and all sorts of people that were in America and had been here the longest. What was the year of, of his trading post when he, when he arrived? What year was that? We're talking about the same period that um, we see the pilgrims almost fail, which is, is I can't tell you the exact year. Well, I imagine if it's in the Elizabethan era, um, 1500, 1600, somewhere in there. It's the early 1600s. So now he has established this place on a, on a mound. It's this beautiful green rolling little hill over the Atlantic. And he calls it Mary Mount. And this is typical of him. It's, it is a mountain dedicated to Mary, but it's also a Mary Mount as in, you know, wenching. <laughs> and, and it's also a pun on, on a Latin word for the, for the male genitalia. And he was always punning like this. He was actually the first American to ever publish a fart joke. <laughs> he was the first American to have a wild party closed down by his neighbors, the pilgrims. And he was the first American to be foreclosed upon by a corporation, the pilgrims. But before that, there was this brief period of this almost utopian community that developed around him. And he wanted to celebrate this. One thing I, I want to stop and mention is that when he became friendly with the indigenous people, they told him about the springs in the area. And he wrote about it, how there were some springs that produced strong dreams. And there were other springs that made you feel really just happy and, and relaxed. And there were some dreams that were he, uh, streams that were healing. And, and he wrote about them in meticulous detail and even mapped, mapped them out for people. So he wants to celebrate and May Day is coming up. So he gets a huge yellow pine and he puts ribbons on it and he writes this body poem and he dedicates it to a goddess. And it's all kind of Shakespearean stuff with Falstaffian overtones. And he puts up this thing and he invites everyone including the pilgrims. Well, everyone show us, shows up except the pilgrims. And, and it's this amazing party that he describes. Now, the pilgrims described it as being this debauched, drunken, violent thing. Of course, they had no idea they weren't there. He, in legal papers that he filed later to try to defend Marymount, he said that actually, quite to the contrary, it was this really uh, emotional and wonderful and very convivial event where all kinds of different people got together. And it was made clear from the beginning, there's no fighting, there's no harassing anybody. This is, we're all going to be nice to each other. We're celebrating May Day. And they all so much cel celebrated this unity that they experienced that they, there's kind of a glow came up around it of a community. Well, this really bothered the pilgrims and they could see that they were in danger of being put out of business. And they were also angry because he was selling guns to a particular tribe that was suffering because they had had decimation due to the diseases that the European colonists brought over and bigger tribes were encroaching on their land, a theme that will reoccur. And so they they thought, well, no, they're arming them to fight us. That's what he's doing over there. He's going to, he's going to raise a, a revolution against us and then take over our stuff. So they arrested him. They came out there and pushed him around and they, they brought him in and they tried him 
and they said that he was guilty of plotting against them. And they he tried to escape at one point by grabbing a a uh, Indian canoe. Uh, and they said that he had stolen the canoe, right? And he had the indigenous people who owned it come into the court and tell them that, no, he did not steal it. He was allowed to use it. Ridiculous kind of things going on. So he, when he was living with the pilgrims, left a record of them that is so unflattering and so undisney. It's, it's actually somewhat horrifying. And he says, for example, that in the winter, they were starving. And, and to him, he knew that the woods were filled with, with animals that he could hunt to an abundance. And he would go hunting for them if they would allow him to. He swore that he would come back with the food. They said, all right. They sent him out. He brought back as much food as he could, but it wasn't enough for everybody. So the poor didn't get any, the poorest among the pilgrims. He said that, that he offered to go out again and said, I'll swear again, let me go get food for them. And they refused. They preferred to let the pilgrims who were poor starve. He was horrified by that. Uh, he was also different from them because they were the ones who were going to ultimately embrace uh, bringing enslaved people to America and, and establishing this triangle, the, the infamous triangle. And they ran tobacco plantations that had already been enslaving and indenturing people. And you'd fall afoul of the law and you'd be taken off to these places. Well, Thomas Morton would put his life on the line sometimes to help people escape who'd been condemned to uh, to work on those plantations. So he was very anti-slavery. Are you suggesting that the plantations, uh, the tobacco plantations, were also run by the pilgrims? No, their ancestors. I'm sorry, their descendants. Okay. It, it was it was Puritans, basically. It was yeah. a Puritan, and the irony of that, by the way, is that it was a Cavalier, somebody who was who was idolized by the Cavaliers, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who was in some ways at the heart of some of this. Uh, Rosicrucian stuff going on in Europe who established the African side of it. He was sent to Africa looking for gold by King James and didn't find any, but he saw that there were already tribes who were marketing enslaved people, and he thought what a great business, and the king was very eager to establish it. So it's it's strange that both sides of this revolution in Europe, the Puritans they accepted that business readily. They saw where it would lead, and they they were they there were slaves in the Bible, so it was okay as far as they were concerned. But also, these progressive, scientifically oriented, Rosicrucian influenced Europeans were also accepting that. Let's go back even earlier to the pre-colonial period, uh, before any Europeans uh, settled in America. There were already, I understand, uh, interactions between fishermen from Europe who would fish in, in the uh, North Atlantic waters off the North North um, American coast and, and would occasionally uh, come ashore and interact with the natives maybe for a century or so before the uh, first colonies uh, were organized. Yes, that's true. And they would often come and dry their catches on the beaches uh, of New England. And so the tribes of New England had very early contacts in particular. But we also had the French and the Dutch that were coming in. 
and the Dutch in the area that is now Manhattan, which they settled, and the French coming in through Canada through uh, Prince Rupert's work because he was one of the people who, who helped colonize Canada. And so all these influences were, were coming into to meet the tribes. One of the, the stories that I found was this kind of amusing was that one of the colonists, when they first arrived here, when they first encountered an indigenous American, was shocked to have the person say, hello, how are you? Welcome to them in English. They couldn't under, they could not imagine how this had occurred and they, they were afraid it was some kind of, of devilry. But it was because traders had been coming there for a long time and, and some of the tribes people had picked up uh, some of the English language. There's also another amusing thing about this that I can briefly tell you, which is that when the tribes would teach their languages to the colonists, they would teach them simplified like slang forms. And all the colonist writers, except a couple that were trusted, complain that, you know, they, I was taught this language, but when they talk amongst themselves, I can't understand a thing they're saying. <laughs> because they only learn the most superficial aspects of, of the language. That's all they were willing to teach them. I mean, I, I can appreciate what that must have been like being a slow language learner myself. <laughs> yes. Let's go back now even earlier, before the uh, first Europeans arrived. Uh, I know where I live here in New Mexico, I'm near a place called Chaco Canyon, which was in the around the um, year 1100 in the uh, Western calendar. There was a, a major civilization in Chaco Canyon with quite a bit of architecture that still remains. And you write about the Mississippian culture uh, located more in the Midwest where uh, they also had large, uh, I guess you'd have to call them cities. Yes, absolutely a city. Yet there were major civilizations ongoing. Now, of course, there was over a thousand languages and vastly different cultures all over America, incredible richness of variety. Um, but some of these had, had become, and they seem to possibly have had some influence from the, uh, the great Mexican and South American, uh, civilizations and or perhaps inspired by them or simply traded with them. I don't think anyone's really sure what the connections were, but they were well established before anything was going on, uh, in terms of contact with the West. And, and some of them were so sophisticated that, that you could get, for instance, seashells from New England all the way in New Mexico. And the, the trade was, was really something quite uh, analogous to the, something like the Silk Road. And in the early days, the, the strangest thing was when the, the fer very first contact, aside from the traders and, and pirates and such, was the Spanish who came in to to declare that they owned all this and then basically marched through America spreading disease, making declarations in Spanish to, to indigenous people that they were now subjects of the King of Spain. Uh, amazing hubris. And uh, there's a story that I tell in there about how one of the leaders of the expedition, they was mistaken for a god because of his armor that would shine in the sun. But then he got dysentery and he died 
And rather than, than let people know that he'd been human, they, they like carefully buried him secretly. And it, it was such a strange scenario, almost surreal, I would say, as the Spanish did this. And, and, and they didn't really accomplish anything except confuse and, and, and kill and injure so many indigenous people because of these diseases that they had, because Europe had, had been in the midst of collected all the diseases from Asia and Africa and Europe. But America had been this kind of island where many of these had never come. And so simple things like the flu, when it swept through America the first time, wiped out whole tribes. I think it's fair to say that due to contact with Europeans, millions of indigenous people died of disease or were otherwise killed because there was a almost constant uh, conflict between the Europeans and, and the indigenous people, e even though there were pockets of uh, good relationships. Yes. There were people like Thomas Morton. Another one I would mention is, is Roger Williams, of course. And, and another one is John Winthrop the Younger, who is somebody that we really should talk about if we're going to talk about the uh, Puritans and, and how they were not as Christian as we think. There was a book published in 1979 by a guy named John Butler, and he was writing about 1650 uh, and what was really going on with Christianity and the, the congregations in New England. And what he found was that only one third of adults ever belonged to a church and that it was even lower in the middle and southern colonies. And we have like in 1687, there's a New York governor who um, said that it, he couldn't get people into the churches and was complaining about how how th they were empty. So John Winthrop the Younger's father was the founding governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, sort of the ultimate Puritan in a way. He was friends with Cotton Mather, another ultimate Puritan. When he was young, growing up in England, John Winthrop the Younger was influenced around the age of 18 by the Rosicrucian pamphlets and the the message of universal reformation so much so that he and his friend edward house went to europe looking for rosicrucians and then he took it even further without house he tried to reproduce crc's journey in the manifestos he actually tried to get to constantinople and was hoping to meet uh, the kind of arabian masters that crc had met who had enlightened him CRC is uh, Christian Rosenkreuz? Correct, exactly. The it's supposed sort of a, founder of the Rosicrucian movement. Something of a mythical figure. Yes, very much so. And so there were many people who had done this, who had the means to do so, who were inspired. But what he did was unique because he decided that although he hadn't met any Rosicrucians, what he could do is he could live his life according to Rosicrucian principles. He decided that what the Rosicrucians were saying in these books really made sense to him, and that's how he would dedicate himself. So he would he would be a scientific man. He would try to use science to improve life for people. He would be an alchemist, and he would try to find medicine for people. He would give them medicine for free, if at all possible, and and he would 
protect the weak, all of these Rosicrucian ideals. And he did do all of these things. And so when he comes over, now we get a really vivid picture of how unpuritan some Puritans were. So now the son of the governor or the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony is coming out to see dad. He's going to move to America now. And he's got crates full of alchemical equipment. And he's got crates full of the library, a good chunk of the library of John Dee, the astrologer of Queen Elizabeth, who was a an expert on occult matters. And his manuscripts were in there. And he marked these crates with John Dee's famous symbol, the Monus Hieroglyphica, which was sort of the ultimate occult symbol at that time. When he arrives, he's, he's met with cannon and, and huge crowd greets him. I mean, for that time and place. And, and there isn't any, no one records any problem with the fact that he has the equivalent of pentagrams all over his luggage. He sets up his alchemical lab in his father's home and gets to work. And his dad thinks it's fascinating. Well, eventually he does get his Rosicrucian ideals start to rub Boston the wrong way. <laughs> And so he decides he's got to get away from dad. and He's going to open up a new colony. And that's the beginning of Connecticut. And he's the first governor of Connecticut colony. In Connecticut, all sorts of interesting things happen. One, there's a hill that's still shown there where he is said to have gone up to create gold whenever he needed it. And he was said to come back with a, with a sack full of gold rings that were all of this beautiful purity. He created medicines that were very effective according to eyewitness testimony of the time. In fact, they say that he was a doctor for half of Connecticut. And the way he did it was he taught a small group of women, nurses, how to diagnose the predominant illnesses of the area. And then he color coded packets of his alchemical medicines to be given to each according to their illness. And people were, were very beholden to him and people were sent from Europe to be taken care of him by his alchemical medicines. And he started three iron foundries, one of which is still standing. He protected a tribe that had been decimated and who the Mohicans were, were abusing terribly and who also Boston had abused by taking away their names and their property rights and supporting the Mohegans who were almost enslaving them. And he, at great risk to his own self and to all these projects that he was doing, he protected this tribe, befriended them and negotiated and manipulated until he got back their freedom, their property and their names. So, most of this isn't written about when you read about him. You, you don't know that this guy was deeply into esotericism. And the ultimate cherry on top is that when he passes, he's eulogized by Cotton Mather. And Cotton Mather calls him Hermes Christianus. This is like saying the pagan... I mean, the Christian pagan is essentially what that means. Is Whether it's Hermes the th thrice great, the father of the entire hermetic esoteric philosophy, or it's Hermes the Greek god, it's pagan. And, and here this great compliment to a dear friend is Hermes Christianus. That shows a very different feeling about 
uh, esoteric wisdom that was present among some of the Puritans. Well, Cotton Mather, if I recall my own history, uh, was also involved, if, was he not, in, in the persecution of supposed witches? He was. He wrote a book that was greatly influential in causing the witch panic. And to his credit, we can say that when he saw what happened, he pulled back and he actually tried to, to settle things down. And he set an example uh, when there was a witch accusation the next time he took the woman into his home and and treated her as part of the family to help her to reform her life and become a true Christian. And he suggested that that was the right way to do it, not to have these trials. But in the beginning, he did support the trials. And even worse, he supported the idea of invisible evidence, that, that people could just say that they had seen these hallucinations and that that was good enough. So you have a, a mixture on, on the one hand of fear of the devil, persecution of witchcraft, and at the same time, the rich hermetic tradition of, of Europe, of which John Dee was probably uh, one of the um, people at the, at the top, the epitome of, of a uh, Elizabethan Renaissance alchemist was John Dee, and his library is already being transported over to the New World. It, it certainly suggests that uh, uh, the, the connection is very direct. Very much so. And in, also, at the time, John Winthrop the Younger was what they used to call an intelligencer. And the intelligencers were the closest thing they had to an internet hub back in the day. It was all the most brilliant minds spread across Europe and, and in the colonies who were investigating science and the esoteric. And whenever they had some sort of a discovery, they would share it with each other. And there was a, a great influence, a, a movement forward in culture because of the information and the way that, that they inspired each other. And one of the attempts that John Winthrop made, the younger made, was to, to bring over what he would call the College of Light. This was based on ideas of Comenius. Comenius was uh, someone who'd been influenced by the Rosicrucians. He was there. He saw the debacle that occurred in the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. But he wrote, this, he, had, he had like a utopian concept of how the world should be based on the idea of universal reformation. And his ideas about education are still in, in our schools, uh, part of what we consider the structure of how it's done. But he was much more radical. He wanted, for example, every person in the world to be taught a common language. That included women and indigenous people and so that we could all communicate at last. He wanted the creation of an alphabet that would allow us to all read and write each other's languages. He, he was somebody who had this idea of the College of Light, which was gather the greatest minds from everywhere, bring them to one place, and let them all work together for the betterment of the world. And so this was an idea that John Winthrop the Younger held close to his heart. And he tried to convince his many friends, including House, to come to America. The unfortunate thing was, as you mentioned, war would break out. 
and suddenly there were burning cabins and back home in England <laughs> contemplating coming out to America to start a college of light somewhere where that could happen just didn't go over. So he, he was never able to do it. And yet, in a sense, America is that college of light. It is a place where where generation after generation of esotericists have come and reinvented themselves and, and created hybrids. And so ultimately, the dream was fulfilled in some sense. Now, I think it's important to understand what was happening in America by looking at what was happening in Europe at, at the time. The Rosicrucians that you've referred to several times seem to be and correct me if I'm wrong, a movement to kind of um, create a, a new enlightenment based on science and one that also had political overtones uh, relating to the overthrow of monarchies and the authoritarian governments that ruled Europe at the time. And I, I gather that uh, the Royal Society was uh, very much... Uh, I don't want to say infiltrated by Rosicrucians. It was actually founded by people associated with the Rosicrucian movement. Well, John Winthrop the Younger was one of the first members of the Royal Society. And I would say that, well, let's talk about the Rosicrucians for a moment in case there's people who don't know. So what, what happened was there were people like Comenius and like, uh, uh, Giordano Bruno, who were bringing ideas to the word Studion, uh, Paracelsus, Jacob Bamey. And these were these revolutionary new visions of, of how society could be and usually utopian in some sense. This was a very dangerous thing to do. Giordano Bruno wound up being killed by the church for his beliefs. Burned at the stake. Yes. And so the... But these ideas had begun to circulate. And I compare it to something like um, in American culture, it's like when the writing by the beats began to circulate amongst a few people and people recognized themselves in it. They recognized that this was something different and it even extended the ideas that they themselves were feeling. Well, that became galvanized by some cosmic events, comets, a series of dramatic comets occurred. And we're all interpreted by astrologers as the sign of something major about to happen. And the Protestants thought it was the collapse of the Pope. That's what they were hoping for. And there were, as a generation of professors at the colleges who were reading this stuff and turning these kids onto it, their students who are these teenagers like Johann Valentin Andre. And Andre had already, as a kid, written satires and utopias. So he was all set up for this information. Their hopes were clustered around a, a holy Roman emperor named Rudolf. And Rudolf was really an occult emperor. He's a fascinating character. I have a book that's going to be coming out next year that's about all of this. And Rudolf was a great art collector and and he didn't really care much for the Catholic Church. He was super interested in the esoteric and would, would meet with Kabbalistic rabbis. And, and that was his passion and art and, and women, basically. And they thought that maybe that they could turn him into, instead of a passive, sort of closeted uh, platonic uh, king, that maybe he could, he could come out of the closet about his esotericism. And we could have an emperor who would stand up against the Pope 
and who would encourage Protestant esoteric Europe to use science and this new freedom of religion to change the world. Well, Rudolf didn't have any interest in that kind of radical stuff. He had enough trouble keeping his throne from his greedy, scheming relatives who ultimately took it from him because they were more devout Catholics and the Pope preferred to have them there. Well, when that happened, Bohemia was in the middle of it. And the new emperor became the the king of Bohemia automatically. And he was a Catholic and he reversed all of Rudolf's tolerance. Bohemia had been a place filled with alchemists, astrologers, scientists. All, Kepler was there. Uh, Tycho Brahe. I mean, everybody that was doing scientific experimentation and, and had come to this court. Jewish people were, were not persecuted. Catholics lived beside Protestants. No more. The Catholics came in and they started to take away rights and they started to impose all sorts of restrictions and ultimately attempting to impose confession again. The Bohemians didn't want anything up to do with this. So they actually literally threw the, the imperial officials out a second story window into a garbage heap and they invited uh, the Elector Palatine, Frederick, to become their king. And Frederick had just married Princess Elizabeth, the daughter of King James. Frederick had already been surrounded by people with Rosicrucian and astrology type of interests. Elizabeth grew up in a court where everybody was into that. Her brother, who had, who had died prematurely, was deeply involved in all sorts of esoteric interests. So now there was this feeling of, okay, this is even better. We've got this young couple. He's the ultimate prince of Germany. She's the great princess of England. And, and together, look at, think of the army that could be put together to withstand the, the Habsburgs. So they offered him the throne and he took it which he really should not have. And as soon as he did, he became a traitor to both the church and the Holy Roman Empire. And he, but he had armies and they, they tried to battle, but they were hopelessly and almost immediately defeated at the Battle of White Mountain, a, a, just a tragedy. And, and this, basically the 30 years war started. Yeah. So what happened to all these people who had pinned their hopes when Frederick was, was married, when Frederick accepted the throne, they were all around. They were writing pamphlets. They were coming up with Rosicrucian ideas about how to recreate society and what a city should look like and just reimagining everything. Now, in my belief, the Rosicrucian manifestos were partly satirical. They were certainly political. They certainly had deep esotericism. And, and they had, they, but they had more humor, I think, than people realize about them. And I think they were intended to send the message that we should each be making a universal reformation in our own little corner of the universe. And there were people who heard that, like John Winthrop the Younger, and who actually did it. But there were many, many more people who went into hysterical kinds of reactions, like a one end, my God, these are the devil's Jesuits. They're, they're going to destroy our society. They're going to, to unleash chaos and immorality everywhere. And we, they're invisible. And they, they have not, all the metaphors were taken literally. And they'd written about the invisible college. It could be anywhere in any, any place at any time. So 
there were panics in Paris, for example, because somebody, either well-intended or a hoaxer, put up a poster saying that the Rosicrucians were now in town. And that if you were interested in joining, you didn't have to say anything. They'd know. I, I think it was a joke, personally. And so I think also that uh, Guy de Borges, the great uh, situationist who was inspired by some of the same stuff, also thought it was a joke. And I think that's why he did his big slogans and posters, partly. So this was very disappointing to that generation of Rosicrucians. And as we've already seen, many of them turned their attention then to the new continent. And and let's let's try to start something there. And as Freemasonry grows up around all this, and this is what confuses also the idea of Rosicrucianism, because you you have this initial stream which appears to be somewhat radical, and then it's it's very quickly adopted by the English and the French, and it becomes part of Freemasonry as, as a certain degree, for example, in the Scottish Rite. And Rosicrucian ideas become a big part of Freemasonry. So there's questions as to the ultimate origin of all this stuff. Is this all Templar stuff? The, the, the Rosicrucians in some way extend from Templar ideas? Or is Freemasonry really the reinvention of the Templars? There's a lot of speculation and arguments about evidence and but the important thing, I think, is to see how these ideas uh, can be such incredible uh, uh, catalysts in culture and, and bring such flowerings, usually, of culture. Because the other thing that I found in this book, returning to your earliest point in our discussion, is that so many writers, people that you would never imagine, the most wholesome American writers, were deeply imbibing the esoteric. And we're influenced by by unimaginable uh, interests in it, and and so I just kept running into that again and again, like like the the key thing. And I also saw this through working with Manly Hall at PRS because of his collections of things. It seemed like the key to so many great artists was their encounter with the esoteric, and that somehow this this opened the way for them. Well, I think an important figure in in this movement must have been Francis Bacon, who wrote The New Atlantis, which seemed to be something of a vision of, of what the new world could become. Yes, this is a this is fascinating because now Manley Hall and Marie, his wife, who's also a scholar in her own right, they I, I do believe that they they thought that it was likely that Francis Bacon was deeply wound up in the origins of Rosicrucianism. And he actually showed me once this amazing copy of this wonderful book, Anatomy of Melancholy by Burton, which everybody should read. It's an incredibly funny and deep book. Um, and But in this particular copy that he had, this, this old tome with the big thick rag pages, there was this weird footnote that said, uh, Johann Valentin Andre, Lord Verulam. Well, the only Lord Verulam up until that point was uh, Bacon. So, so to Manley Hall, this was a, a subtle hint from somebody to to future historians, saying this guy was this. And then there's another one in a different book, which was a reference to Francis Rosie Cross, and they were writing about something about Bacon. And so he thought that, that these were hints by the people that were involved in the creation of the Royal Society, which was filled with these Rosicrucian enthusiasts. And 
and Marie thought that it was a huge kind of uh, uh, conspiracy in a positive sense of Rosicrucians and Freemasons who created the country and then, according to her, buried all the proof of, of what they had done that would be rediscovered by human beings and would galvanize humanity. And she was so devoted to it that she went out at midnight once in a graveyard in Virginia, digging up graves, trying to get to this stuff. She never successfully found anything and alleges that, that she was uh, prevented from doing so. But now what I, what I see when I'm looking at, at, uh, at, at the history of it and it is this wonderful, uh, adoption of these ideas by, by by human beings and it's it's interesting because we see that uh, as rosicrucianism continues it begins to get into theosophical territory and now we're going to have invisible masters who are rosicrucians and i was really into that when i worked for him i did all kinds of, of vows in order to try to i wanted to meet and volunteer i, I didn't get the manifestos either and I expected invisible masters to reward my dedication. But, but now I find it's more thrilling to contemplate this as human invention and creativity and human spirituality. And that, that these people, uh, imagined all of these wonderful things were inspired and, and that, that we inspired each other. And then it rolled on through time to create all sorts of things that they're wonderful and would have been inconceivable to the people who originally created these, these documents that started it all. It's a fascinating history. Certainly I've been to, and I'm sure you've been to the Rosicrucian Museum in San Jose, California, where you see a, a very uh, well-established and, and wealthy organization that claims to have its origins in ancient Egypt. Yes, absolutely. There's, there's several such uh, Rosicrucian organizations in, in America. Uh, there's, there's one, I believe, and there's two in California, and I believe there's one in Pennsylvania. Is it still there? Um, and, and each of them has its unique history. And, uh, the Rosicrucian scholar, early Rosicrucian scholar A.E. Waite said, uh, that the, none of them had any connection to anything actually Rosicrucian. <laughs> but I don't think that's really true because I think that their ideas, some of their stuff really is inspired. And that idea of going all the way back to Egypt is something that is there in the earliest work. And so much of this dates back to the ideas of people like Paracelsus and Agrippa. I mean, someone once said that, that, that something like 75% of all occult literature is plagiarized from Agrippa. Uh, and uh, Agrippa was um, European and uh, about 15th century, is that right? Because more or less late medieval and just getting into the Renaissance. Uh, uh, I think very much influenced by Ficino and, and the birth of the, the Renaissance. A lot of his ideas, I think, actually come from the Neoplatonists and from Ficino. Uh, there was this beautiful flowering of all these pagan ideas around the hymns of Orpheus and uh, Ficino's extraordinary character uh, in Western esotericism. Well, since you bring it up, I want to mention parenthetically that you have a new translation of the hymns of Orpheus that uh, uh, will be coming out later this year. That is true. Uh, Co-authored with Tamara, uh, my wife and partner, and... It's uh, called The Magic of the Orphic Hymns. 
We'll have to do a separate interview uh, when that book comes out. Well, Ronnie, I'm so excited that we have connected. For me, you are the the closest connection that uh, I I now have to uh, Manley Hall himself. Even even though I was involved in the organization he founded for many decades, uh, so I'm delighted that we've connected. But before we conclude our discussion today, I think we need to go back to Roger Williams. We haven't really touched on him and uh, the founder of the state of Rhode Island, a man who wrote uh, a, uh, was it a dictionary of Native American languages, uh, who really understood the Native American cultures probably better than anyone. He's kind of like John Winthrop the Younger amplified in some sense and he's somebody who set out he just he could not stand first he caused trouble because when he came out here he told boston that there should be freedom of religion and the puritans were not happy about that so they started to suspect him and he was restricted in what he was allowed to do and he just felt like you guys have it all wrong there's a lot of wilderness out here i'm going to go out there and see what i can do and and he attracted all the iconoclastic people that couldn't fit into this suffocating Boston culture. So in a sense, he he was the one who continued the tradition of Tom Morton. He's the one who opened instead of just one small hill and a trading post, but a whole territory would now be welcoming to other religions, to uh, to indigenous people and. And he was very interested in understanding indigenous people from their own point of view. And he wrote very honestly about how, in many ways, he thought they were superior and that they had things that we could learn from. Now, he did also think that they were still under the influence of Satan. He, he reports that shamans could do really amazing things like change weather or cause a, a dead branch to suddenly right before your eyes sprout a leaf or cause ice to congeal on a hot day. And he records these things respectfully and says, yes, the, you know, there's a, they have some kind of power, but it's of the devil. <laughs> so he still had that going on. He was still a product of his time and place, but his interest in these matters and more importantly, his fairness the way that he treated people and the way he, he tried in the same way that, that John Winthrop did, but I think with more success in Roger Williams' case, to create a civilized tone, if you will, or, or an example of, of how people should act. And it was, it was all him applying the Gospels. And, and he was such a great example of a Christian, I think. And uh, when you look at American history and, and you look for inspiration for unity instead of division, he's front and center. One other point before we conclude our interview, because uh, I would like to bring up, when we began, you described a tension between uh, a group of people in modern America who want to push scientific and technical development as fast as we can, regardless of the social cost, and uh, other people who are more interested in sustainability and living in harmony with nature. Uh, and I think that's a pretty accurate reflection of uh, some one of the major divisions in American culture today. But when we discussed the Rosicrucians 
of the 16th century and how they're the ones who actually founded the Royal Society, which became the Royal Scientific Society. Uh, and in that era, science was associated with a more liberal attitude vis-a-vis -vis religion and vis-a-vis -vis political authoritarianism. So it, it's as if uh, the, the, the sands are always shifting. Well, it's funny. They got caught in a trap in a way. And a good example of this is Robert Flood. Robert Flood is often held up as this guy must have been a Rosicrucian, although he actually, in one of his books, said, I swear I'm not a Rosicrucian. But of course, that's the fun of the whole Rosicrucian thing, because a Rosicrucian would swear that he wasn't a Rosicrucian at that time because they were secret. But he wrote these amazing books in which he tried to encompass the entirety of knowledge. And some of it was accurate and some of it wasn't, but it was all brilliantly imaginative and creative. And he was a believer in what was called um, the salve remedy. And this, it was a strange piece of so-called medicine of the time, which said, if you cannot uh, access the person who has been wounded, you can, you can use this salve uh, on the weapon and it will heal them from a distance. But you can also apply the salve to the wound itself. And it was supposedly effective. Well, somebody had come along and accused the salve of being a devil's trick. And they left this accusation nailed to Flood's door. So Flood had to respond. So the pamphlet war then occurred, <laughs> the, the ancient uh, flaming <laughs> and social media. And it took a lot longer, but they, these pamphlets would come out and they would have these debates publicly and insult each other. And so th while this was going on and this big argument was happening, no, this is the power of God to heal. No, this is the power of the devil. Along came somebody uh, who wrote a book called uh, Harmonie Universal, which was a book about music. But this was the first materialist science to really study text. And he was, he was taking away all the magic, all the mysticism. It's all about physical science. And, and he said the whole solve idea is ridiculous. And that probably the only reason anybody gets healed is they're being healed by nature. And if anything, the salve probably prevents healing from happening when it's used directly on the wounds. There you see, and then Flood was ridiculed because all the scientists went, yes, of course, that's right. And suddenly the mystical side of science began to recede in a very big way. And a guy like Flood was held up as a ridiculous joke for these crazy ideas that he had come up with about how things actually work, even though some of his ideas were accurate and were actually brilliant. So this is, this is, I think what happened to the Rosicrucians, their science was part of their belief that the world was going to end. And before it did, all the knowledge would return. Adam's knowledge would return to humanity. And they were trying to make this happen because they wanted the world to end so that they could ascend into heaven. They actually had these beliefs at the time. And there are people who have them now. And so the, the Rosicrucians were, were trying to bring about this knowledge for a very mystical reason. They also saw it as understanding the language of God in nature. 
that that all of these cures and all of the, these these things that bring us wealth were, were things that were placed there by God for us to recognize and understand. And so they they were not they didn't have a materialist science. They were were mystical scientists and and but they gave birth to materialistic science. That's the great irony of it. And of course, today we have good empirical evidence supporting the validity of distant healing. Yes, exactly. So many things that, that were considered ridiculous, uh, even things in stuff like Edgar Casey or other spiritualist uh, circles. And more and more of this, we find, I, I think it's interesting, for example, and this is another conversation, but there was a famous medium in the 30s and 40s. Uh, her husband, Stuart Edward White, and her, Betty White, had the unobstructed universe teachings, which are wonderful and very obscure these days. But but they had the idea that uh, that that this uh, the way things work is all frequency, that that where we are after we are disembodied is simply a different frequency. Mm-hmm. We're in the same place, the same universe. We're just in a different form, a different part of the spectrum. And and Stuart Edward White writes about how uh, he got letters from physicists of the time that he that were like long lists of equations saying, you know, yes, this is she's right. And this is the reason why. And he said, I have no idea what they were saying, only that they were very excited by what she had said. I know that the uh, Betty books and the uh, unobstructed universe have been very influential uh, among people who were influential in my life. So I feel touched by that material. Ronnie, what a joy to have this time with you. I'm so delighted we've connected. I uh, hope that we can do uh, a number of additional interviews. We have uh, kind of barely touched on this magnificent book and you've got uh, another one coming out in august and i gather yet another you're working on so i would be honored and i'm also working on one about the unobstructed way uh let me thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with me and, and with the new thinking aloud audience today thank you so much and for those of you watching or listening thank you for being with us because you're the reason we're here The inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website.